episode of Surgeons Lives. I'm your host, John Monson. Our guest today is Mark Coleman, a colorectal surgeon in the UK. Mark has, throughout his career, developed a passion for education and teaching and has been uh, the chairman of the LAPCO um, Laparoscopic Colorectal Training Program, the national program in the UK for a number of years, um, something that I was connected with um, in the very early days. Alongside that, he's had a passion for cars of all sorts and has quite a collection to talk to us about. Um, so we're looking forward to have him join um, our uh, conversation today. And without further ado, let's um, hand over to uh, Mark Coleman. This is Surgeons Lives, and I'm John Monson. Well, welcome, Mark. Uh, thanks for um, taking the time out of your out of your life to talk to us um, today on um, another episode of Surgeons Lives, um, which is um, a podcast that um, really wants to talk to surgeons not just about their career which we'll talk about in a moment, but also the other side of their uh, life. Um, yeah, apologies for my uh, unsalubrious background. No, not at all. Um, um, I just um, did a recent episode um, talking to um, Fabio Patenti, um, yeah. who is um, currently sitting in the near the Panama Canal, Panama Canal, on his catamaran preparing to sail across the Pacific. Well, I feel even less of a man now. Yeah, exactly. My office, <laughs> office at work on a Friday night. But um, yeah. No, that's exactly anyway. right. That's, um, that is quite a passion to deliver. So um, normally what I do, um, just for everybody's benefit, um, is to a little bit of uh, set the scene by asking you to um, tell us a little bit about your life, starting with the words I was born in. Well, I was born in Barnet, London. And what happened then to get you to where you are today? <laughs> my uh, parents exported me to South Africa for 10 years. Uh, my father was a uh, a founding professor of anaesthetics in Durban ah. in the 60s and 70s, and um, amongst other things, set up the cardiac, cardiothoracic anaesthetic unit in Durban. So we wow. were there for 10 years. He's, he's an, um, a petrol head as well and an and, uh, Englishman. Mother's a South African, and we were there for 10 lovely years in the wonderful weather and great surroundings. Yeah. And did you return, or they return, or um, um, what? Yeah, they uh, made made a, a a career move and a sort of a social move in the time of apartheid. My mother actually grew up in South Africa and realised that that it wasn't for her because her eyes were opened by emerging awareness of of the the, the wrongs of apartheid and decided this wasn't the place she wanted to bring her children up. So at the age of ten, we came to a a grey and murky island in the North Atlantic. Yeah. Yeah. And um, um, where did where were you where did you move to? Were you still in the south? Yeah, my first place of residence was Northwick Park Hospital, 
and then um, we moved to the suburbs of northwest London. That's where my father had his um, the later stages of his career. Firstly, doing a lot of uh, NHS work, and then um, in private practice. Yeah. All right. And um, were you always destined, do you think, for doctoring, or um, just from the family business? Yeah, I mean, uh, my grandfather in South Africa was a cardiologist and uh, having being a child of little imagination, I conceived of nothing else. And when uh, back in the day, if you remember, a lot of operating theatres had had um, viewing galleries. Yeah. And when childcare was was thin on the ground, I would be put in the viewing gallery at Northwick Park Hospital at the age of about 11 or 12 watching, you know, orthopedics or a skin graft or something like that and um so i guess it was in the blood early on yeah that's a, that's an interesting introduction and um i'm sure the psychiatrists would have a field day with that in terms of potential ptsd or whatever never, never put me off and i was also a patient undergoing appendicectomy in the hospital so yeah i guess it was always it was always there um and so where did, where did you go to medical school? I went to Leicester. I had to retake my A-levels and the only offer I ever had was um, was three A's in Leicester. So I retook, got them and went off. So never, never too far from home, an hour and a half up the M1. Yeah, it is interesting, you know, when you, you talk to people in things like this or just in general in your professional life, um, you know, the, there's a perception that, um, you know, all um, all surgeons, you know, are um, the creme de la creme in terms of A-levels and scores and exams, etc. And, and it's, it's simply not true. I mean, you know, people, you know, come at it from different directions. Um, uh, um, Absolutely. And I, I would describe myself at that stage as being remedial and struggling to get the last place in the country to study medicine. So I was uh, sort of determined, but um, but fortunate at the same time and uh, went yeah, on and was, had a good, um, good, good time. I chatted, uh, did one of these um, with um, Professor John McPhee, who I'm sure you know well. Um, yeah. And his his um, determination, and I'm paraphrasing, was fueled by the fact that he had a very successful brother, elder brother, um, and he himself, John, had failed the eleven plus. Um, mm. So you know this this gave him a, a determination and something of a chip on his shoulder. Um, mm. Um, to you know that drove him through his through his career um so you you always knew you wanted to do surgery when you were in medical school or did you flip and flop mm. no i flipped and flopped a bit and in fact um for some reason still unknown to me i did quite well at pediatrics in the fourth year the beginning of the fourth year and then um through that year i did other things including orthopedics and by the end of that year i was determined i was going to be an orthopedic surgeon and that really carried me through um final year and and uh house jobs as they were called um in in leicester and off i went doing various sho jobs i don't know if you remember in the 90s or something called achieving a balance in the uk where they 
dissolved all the SHO rotations almost overnight and we were left with doing our own six month jobs. So I went went yeah. round the houses to places like well, I did uh, anatomy demonstrating at Charing Cross in London and then a casualty of what's known as ED now. And then went off to Cambridge to orthopedics and then down to Guildford to do some urology in general. And, then, and really through locuming as a demonstrator, a lecturer in anatomy, I realized that um, that maybe orthopedics didn't quite have enough diversity and skills challenge for me. And I wanted to be a general surgeon, particularly a GI surgeon, yeah. It is interesting, you know, the, the, um, the history of the NHS and indeed many healthcare systems that are single payer systems are replete with um, genius workforce ideas um, that um, I remember the, a former um, CMO, Ken Kalman, who I'm sure you recall very well, yeah. um, who was a surgeon by training. Um, Ken Kalman said, you know, everybody should have a series of badges, uh, lapel badges saying, I survived the reforms of 92, um, et cetera. <laughs> well, and, and 95, because I was then subject to Kalmanization, having become a an old style registrar and having done the old style primary FRCS and then I had to do the new style part two. And then I was told that wasn't good enough. I had to do the intercollegiate part three. And then we were Kelmanized into uh, SPRs as they were known, yeah. specialist registrars. And, and so I, you know, and then there was a question over whether we should do a period of research. Um, and some uh, trainees were reasonably going through training without doing so. so you know, every era is characterized by change. And every yeah. time uh, the new lot come along, they say, gosh, there's so much change going on. We say, well, I do remember times when when change happened in my sure. day as well. So, yeah. And, and the intriguing thing about, as you say, and it, it happens everywhere, it's a, I think it's a human condition, is that one thing that also doesn't change is the... Um, inability to recognize the mistakes of the past and to simply <laughs> repeat them under a different yeah. guise you know absolutely those who don't learn from their errors are condemned condemned to repeat them yeah exactly now you mentioned your, your dad was a petrol head or um, mm. um uh, how did that uh, manifest itself well he um when he when he was at medical school at St. George's in London when it was on Hyde Park Corner and he was an enthusiast at the time and they were racing Austin Sevens around Hyde Park Corner in the days when yeah. you merely got a telling off by a bobby. Yeah. And when he came out post house jobs to South Africa, he I may have had one of the only MGAs, bright red, um, in, in Durban and Natal and um met my mother and there's a few photos of him standing with one of the old long surfboards by his mg uh, and then he there wasn't any form of anesthetic training in south africa so they came back to the uk where i was born then they went back out and then he exported um you couldn't buy mgs at the time in south africa not everyone's cup of tea but he exported a chrome bumper british racing green mgb Mm. Um, in the in the early 70s, as I recall. And as far as I know, friends of family still have the car in a lockup somewhere in Johannesburg. Wow. And wow. I'd dearly love to uh, bring it back to the UK. I should mm. think it's, it's probably quite well preserved if it's been in the Transvaal. 
but um, again, a, a beautiful and, and collectible car. Yeah, and, um, a car that um, a car that you know it's it's kind of fashionable to uh, to underrate. Um, you know, because it's not very exotic and they made a lot of them, etc., yeah. etc. Et and of course it had yeah. quite a few of the deficiencies, but it's but it is an underrated car. I mean, it's yeah. to coin a phrase that was is used in the UK from it does exactly what it says on the tin, you know. I yeah, mean, it, and it's got a racing pedigree and it's got a almost unmistakable sound from its engine, like yeah. a like an original mm -hmm. mini. You know, you can't mistake an MGB coming. I think it's got Haystav twin SU carbs and yeah. and a characteristic exhaust note and uh, unmistakable, as you say. Mm. Um, and, and so, when did you start uh, dabbling? I mean, you know, there is the uh, in almost, you know, in the in the interviews that I do with people who have a car interest or uh, shall we say an expensive interest. Um, <laughs> Well, boats and planes, yeah. you know, are um, yeah, are the same thing. You know, I always r repeat, um, you know, Nick Mason's um, statement. Mm. He said, you know, um, how did you start get buying cars? And he said, you know, when I started earning a lot of money. Um, so <laughs> not having money is is a little bit of a damper for the vast majority of people who have a car collecting interest but mm. so um you know when you went to medical school or your house jobs etc what was your mode of transport then well uh, my father bought me a 15 year old Vauxhall Viva HA in Monza Red uh it would with the wind behind achieve 50 miles an hour down the M1 on the way to and from from home and I remember him teaching me to do things like change the brake pads with drum brakes as I remember certainly on the back how oh, to wow. change the drums yeah. and then <laughs> then I had an HC a Vauxhall Viva HC in sky blue and I think that had disc brakes at the front and we would change the brake pads and and bleed the brakes that those sort of simple tasks um, on the driveway at home so those were some of my first experiences of cars that dad bought he usually tapped up an author an odp at work and uh, an operating tech um who was selling a car and uh, couldn't get much money for it and he would offer them a few hundred quid and and do them a favor and take the car off their hands and uh, we'd sort of think what what kind of little sports car his dad bought us next and it was usually something uh, unromantic like a Vauxhall Viva or a Chrysler Avenger yes yeah, yeah. Uh, my dad was a car mechanic and sold cars on the side from a uh, from a small uh, you know side of the road little lot you know and w when i was in medical school he, he he would provide me with the car but the main characteristic was that it was so bad he didn't want it seen yeah, around <laughs> him so exactly most, yeah most yeah. of the cars came with um sidebar instructions mm. such as you might want to pump the brakes regularly um, or, and I remember he, I had a, a, an 1100 Austin, that thing that used to go up and down like a boat. Yeah. Um, he, uh, that one, the instructions were to always carry water. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so they were not, um, they were not yeah. the exotic cars of, uh, that you see nowadays, um, young mm. kids getting, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, um 
So I, I, I must say I love the um, I love the Vauxhall Viva in Monza red. You know the, mm. the irony of calling it Monza red. Is absolutely, absolutely. Classic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wish I had a photo. I've probably got one buried somewhere amongst albums. So, uh, you know, when was the uh, when did you purchase what I I would refer to as your first indulgence either overt indulgence or covert indulgence so i that would be a, an original 1976 um mark one golf gti volkswagen uh, manual um 1600 four speed um some people argue the best vw yes. golf gti the original yeah. one in in the flame red with the with the um tartan seats if you remember yeah I do a, a absolutely great car and i really enjoyed that and that was at about the time I, I sort of inherited a car temporarily i had a younger brother who did quite well as an estate agent but had a habit of losing his license he was a bit naughty and so every now and then i'd have a hand-me-down from him when he couldn't drive something like an mg metro turbo you remember those with yes the, Mm. a series engine with a little turbo strapped onto it deeply unsexy and yeah. probably not many left on the road because they all rotted to pieces but but after that my first purchase was the golf gti as a house officer i actually had um, a series one gti when i was working at the very beginning of my sho career in dublin and it lasted mm. this is the beginning of the 80s and um it lasted about a year um before it was stolen and written off um and dublin at that point was the joyriding capital of europe um yeah and the, and the kids were smart enough that they there were kids that were doing it and they never stole um they would never steal an mg metro they were always bmws and gti gobs and things like that yeah. it was a great car that thing um but yeah sadly um sadly was found uh, smoldering um on the side of the road somewhere um, mm. um and uh, but now you know you you've got um uh, uh, a fantastic collection of things which are really quite eclectic um, yeah yeah i i'm quite i like i like um i'm not really stuck to any particular brand or indeed country and i i like um land rovers i've got two um two older Land Rovers and a Range Rover and um, enjoy those. And I enjoyed doing a bit of tinkering on them. I learned a lot about fiddling with cars in lockdown, for example, using the, the Bible known as YouTube, yes. um, which teaches, yeah. you many, teaches you many things about cars. I still don't have enough time to do as much as I would like with cars, but it's um, sure. so, so yeah. I had to subcontract a lot of that sort of thing, unfortunately, but um, time will tell. So when you um, when you finished your <clears throat> excuse me your surgical um, training, um, you obviously decide. Well, well, answer me this. Actually, had you decided you were going to be a colorectal surgeon, or did it emerge? Well, uh, no, I, I did decide pretty much early on um, in my registrar training. I was in Salisbury uh, in '95. I had an Alpha seventy-five Twin Spark. Uh, managed to leave too much, too little antifreeze in it, and it went down to minus twenty and cracked the heads. So we're aluminium. Ooh. That was uh, that was a write-off. 
Yes. Anyway, so by then I decided I happened to meet a Australian surgeon who offered me a fellowship later on in my training in upper GIHPB. Um, and I lied, went out there, pretended I wanted to do upper GIHPB later the same decade um, and uh, had a great year, but always wanted to do colorectal and worked for people like Bill Heald and so on to cement that um, that uh, experience and training. So, uh, and where were you in Australia? I was in Brisbane. In Brisbane. In Brisbane, yeah. So people yeah. like Russell Stitz and people were around there at the yeah. time, guessing. John yeah. Lumley, Andrew Stevenson. In, yeah. But I was working for uh, uh, Les Nathanson, famed yes. for his liver attractor, great exactly. surgeon, one of the one of the technical gods in my view. George Fielding, a real doyen of bariatric surgery of his day. And Nico Rourke, who did, uh, we did the first yeah. laparoscopic liver resection in Australia whilst I was out there. Yeah. So yeah, it was a great, it was a great year, great fun. George um, is another interviewee on this podcast, um, who, as you will recall, um, has the most extraordinary knowledge of wine. Um, yes. And is actually um, has literally just retired in the last couple of months. Um, yeah, from yeah. Clinical well, they, he, there was one time he he owned a Maserati Gran Turismo and he turned up at a restaurant, and when he got back in the car, the engine would start, but when he pressed the throttle pedal, nothing would happen. The engine wouldn't rev. Um, so he said, what can you do? And I reached under the dashboard and it was one of it, being a Maserati had a lot of Fiat spare parts. So I reached under the dash and reattached the, the throttle cable linkage, which was a little widgety screw, not much more. And, um, and he was so amazed. He gave me his car for the weekend and even paid, even paid for the speeding ticket I got when, uh, when I was, uh, driving it around for the weekend. He was a very generous man. And it was a, it was a good story. So um, ed, um, just uh, educate me. At, so at the time that you were completing your training, um, uh, you gained your colorectal expertise, as you say, with people like Bill Heald and one thing or another. Yeah. Um, was that just before the sort of uh, heavy formalization of fellowships came along? Um, you know, that yeah, is yeah. now university. Yeah, I mean this is, I was a made a consultant in 2001. Just before that, I was examined for my intercollegiate exam by a yeah. guy called Professor John Monson yeah. in Glasgow. And, uh, and yeah, he was a different... Whatever guy. happened to him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, yeah, so the, the, the big wave of laparoscopic fellowships in particular came along in the, I think, about 2003, because we were a centre in Plymouth. For, for the Ethicon sponsored fellowships through the associations yeah. of Galaproptology yeah. and laparoscopic surgeons. And I, uh, I, I wanted a fellowship in the 90s, but no, none such existed in the UK um, at either end of the GI tract. And I, I went to Australia, but it was a, a great experience and huge numbers of yeah. cases. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I visited Brisbane around that same time um you know when I, I was in Hull at that point as you know from 93 on and mm. you know we created what was in effect a laparoscopic fellowship because of just of the size of the program there 
um, at yeah. the time. And, you know, people like John Griffiths were fellows and, you know, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, a friend of mine, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know John's a, uh, John's a special for sure. Um, so, um, so what do you think in, you know, so 20 plus years you've been a consultant in the NHS and, um, you know, I ask this question of people regardless of where they are um, geographically, either side of the Atlantic, but what do you think has been the biggest change in surgery in your time, either for the better or for the worse? Well, I think I think that probably the biggest change is the way that we work now in a horizontal form of hierarchy where you're much more dependent on your consultant colleagues um, and uh, and you don't work within a traditional firm of consultant um, residents and interns or registrars and house officers as we call them in the UK um, and uh, and you're the whole sort of hierarchical system in the operating theatre has been exploded into much more of a team working environment, which is said and evidenced to be safer than, than how it used to be. And obviously the, the old hierarchy had the potential danger where a surgeon didn't have the necessary technical or non-technical skills for it to be unsafe. And I suppose one could argue that's no longer the case in in the right places and with the right practices. Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, politics and managers have become much more interfering in terms of the development of healthcare, the old system where a consultant had a diary and a secretary and ran their firm and knew all their patients on their waiting list and oftentimes knew the dates that their surgery was coming up. Sadly, that, that's gone and we're just um, much more employees than we than we would like to be now, I think. So, so it's a very different relationship between us and our employers than it used to be. Yeah, I, it, um, I mean, I, it's, in, it's interesting that, you know, people give different answers to these questions, obviously, um, because it's through the prism of their own experience to some extent. <clears throat> I, I do recall, um, you know, at the time when the new consultant contract was being debated um, in the UK, um, you know, which introduced the concept of actually um, managing your time, you know, as in where are you, you know, those notional half days and clinical days and non-clinical days. And it struck me at the time and, um, you know, it was proven to be right, but not because I was a visionary, but because I think it was pretty obvious that that it was the danger was to deprofessionalize um, the way people behaved. You know, the, 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 the transactional deal for consultants in the NHS was for many years work very hard um, mm -hmm. above and beyond in the vast majority of cases in the most difficult of circumstances, you know, restricted resources, not everything was perfect. And in re and return to that, everybody understood you were doing your best. The patients understood, the administration understood, and indeed, to an extent, the government understood. But once people started being asked to clock in and out, um, I always thought that was um, a massive mistake. And, 
you know, immediately that happened. What I saw when I was still working there was that people said, okay, if you're going to treat me like, um, you know, a, a factory worker, I'm going to behave like a factory worker. I'm not having a meeting at 5.30 or whatever because I'm done now. Um, and I thought that was, I thought that was a huge error. I'm totally blanking on the name of the Department of Health administ uh, admin guy who did it, Andrew something, um, but it was a catastrophe. Lansley, yeah. Huh? No, yeah, Andrew. no, 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 he was a minister. No, this guy was an administrator. He was a huge All right. guy. And I always yeah. remember he got naturally after the catastrophe with the reduction in productivity and the increase in costs. Yeah. He was yeah. knighted, yeah. of course. <laughs> of course, as you do. <laughs> no, I think I think you're right. And, um, you know, the thing is that we're generationally on, on got a foot in both camps. We're aware of what it was like before and we're certainly aware of what it's like now. And um, but you do see that our younger colleagues who are very, very much brought up post-millennium mm -hmm. um, in terms of training and consultanthood are much more transactional and, you know, I yeah. go to work and I go home and, you know, you ask them to pick up additional activities and it's very much on their own terms rather than, you know, thinking yeah. of the, the provision and needs of the service. Um, and uh, as currently as, as the service line director for Colorectal, it's uh, it's difficult because you can't pressurize people unduly um, because they have a different mindset to to ours. You know, you you mentioned uh, the use of millennials, etc. And as you say, you know they are more transactional, and they uh, but quite specifically, they're much more interested in what might be loosely termed a work-life balance. Um, and yeah. I'm sure that that is that in isolation is a good thing um yeah. you know in my day surgeons did not talk about you know a life outside of surgery other than playing around with golf and it was almost mm -hmm. perceived as being um you know a sign of weakness that you would be off mm -hmm. doing some frippery etc and and you absolutely would never have discussed issues such as stress um, yeah. and you know anxiety and all of that sort of stuff and I, i'm sure that was not good um yeah and it's one of the reasons why you know i wanted to do these um um podcasts to to sh you know to really just you know raise the rock a little on that uh, you know surgeons are a little there is another side to their life um, and it's important. A surgeon told me recently that, you know, being able to spend a lot of time cooking, um, you know, was a great stress reliever, um, um, which made him a nicer person to work with at work. Mm. And I think there's a, is that, is that something that resonates with you or? Oh, definitely. The simple pleasures in life. I enjoy cooking. Um, and I enjoy my small family, one son, who's also arguably even more of a petrol head than I am. Um, and, you know, when once he started watching things like Netflix, Drive to Survive, he never went back. You know, he's an absolute addict. And in fact, there's no way he's going to do medicine. He wants to either do engineering or design or a combination of the two and wants to work in F1. Um, yeah. 
so it's uh it's a pressure on me to try and find uh, a way in because it's a tough um tough entry point getting into anything approaching uh, one of the big f1 teams very much so and mm. i know from the teams that i have known over the years um the bolters as they call them you know there's a there's quite a there's quite a dichotomy between the bolters, namely mm. mechanics on each corner that bolt things on, um, mm. and everyone else who has a, a, lap um, a laptop who probably has yes. a PhD. Uh, mm. And a good friend of mine was a retired racing driver, um, the late Barry Williams. Um, and Wizzo Williams. Wizzo Williams. He used to um, rent out his room and his a room in his house to um, various mechanics um, from F1 teams that were local to him in Silverstone. Um, and the mechanics, you know, would tell you that these legendary designers that were walking around, you know, literally wouldn't be able to change a spark plug in the car, um, <laughs> but they would be able to design the spark plug. Yes. Yeah, and absolutely. They wouldn't actually I think James, you know, yeah. Yeah, my son's heading more towards the design side yes. of things rather than the the grease greasy um, spanner side of things. And uh, he's currently reading Adrian Newey's book on how to design an F1 car. It's very in which each each um, chapter is a is a is a different car, usually championship winning, yes. because there is no better. So I'm glad I'm glad he's taking that interest. But he does, as you say, he does need to go to university. Yeah, he needs to get a PhD in something around engineering before he has a chance it's a and it's a very interesting book that um I, i've been fortunate enough to chat with adrian newey a few times usually sitting waiting for a race in the goodwood revival you know just in the yeah. collecting area and it, you know he's a, mm. he's a thoroughly nice guy to talk to very mm. humble and unassuming but he clearly has a very um there's a lot going on in the head yes as yeah. you're talking I think to he, he run he runs a very well sorted e-type like one like you've got on the wall there yes uh, yeah um, his e-type spent a large amount of time in the wind tunnel at red bull um <laughs> it is it is i i just to correct you it is not like an e-type that i have. i know that yeah, car okay. well, and it's it's a rocket ship actually um yeah one of the original lightweights one of the original level lightweights. it was the essex wire car so um segue so two um two land rovers um yeah iconic things and then you have you've got um you know transitioning towards exotica yeah yeah i'm sort of transitioning away from my mercedes amg gtr at the moment which is a fantastic car but i'm always looking for a little bit of change i like different engine configurations so i'm thinking maybe i've never had a v12 or a v10 so i'm interested in something like that before i get too old to look stupid in one of these things um, I don't think Italian Exotica always look particularly good on in Devon. The lanes are a bit narrow for a start. Plus, um, plus I think people take a certain view of you. Maybe different in Florida. I'm sure it is. Um, but uh, yeah, so always, always thinking. Yeah. Um, 
I, yeah, I so I didn't have a GTR, but I had a GTS, um, mm. which I thought was a spectacularly capable car. Um, mm. That was almost certainly going to result in loss of license um, mm. because it it doesn't like tootling around, um, yeah. and in fact, and in fact, there's no point uh, in yeah. having it to tootle yeah. around because. Mm. Um, I've had a series of AMGs, and one of my biggest gripes about them is that they have set to, I think, what's called comfort mode. Um, yes, that's right. Yeah. As the most dreadful turbo lag. Um, mm. And so you have to set it to sport, um, at least. And if you set it to sport, it it is... Um, I'm reliably informed by Mercedes insiders is designed specifically to chew up the tires so that you have to buy new <laughs> tires at an enormous amount of money every four yeah. to five thousand miles. <laughs> I think the GTS is that's absolutely right in comfort mode, but the GTRs have got a bit more about it, and uh, so so that's one way around it. Switch to a GTR. One of the best AMGs I had was the um, C63, naturally aspirated um, 6.3. That sounded wonderful. Yes. Uh, except the dog, the dog would never get in the back with the engine on. And uh, well, I had I had a drophead version, um, the yeah. Cabriolet, and um, mm. I thought it was a wonderful car in terms of every aspect, except that it had these two little side radiators at the bottom of the front. You know. Oh yeah. yeah, and I lost um, I, I lost three radiators every three months. <laughs> I would lose one because there were, a stone would go through it. Uh, yeah, and they eventually made uh, change the design to put a grill in front of it because there was no grill in front of it. Um, yeah, which was very disappointing because I thought it was a, a lovely car. Now you you say that. Um, the the lanes of Devon, the road, the country roads of Devon are not wide enough perhaps for an old-fashioned testarossa or something like that but you, mm. if i recall correctly you do have an aston martin which is not exactly known for being slim at the hips no that's actually the gtr is wider than that but is that, um, you do uh, you've got to be careful which roads you pick i don't have the vantage anymore but um that was yeah that's narrow i mean the gtr was uh, is wider as wide as my um, Range Rover Vogue, it's quite, yeah. quite a quite the a thing. Modern cars are huge in general. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, when I anytime I take the E-Type somewhere and park it beside somewhere, you know, you, you yeah. think that's like a miniature car. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and it's hard to know where all that space has gone. I mean, what what's I know. it for? I know. Um, you park park one of my modern cars next to my. The one I wouldn't sell, which is my TVR Griffith '96, um, and it looks tiny. And my son, I got my son a, Maz, a Mazda or Miata MX-5 Mark II, and that looks even smaller next to these great big yeah. things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you you've answered uh, one question for me, which was, um, if you could only have one, what would it be? Of the of the cars I have, the TVR, yeah, um, and you know that what's great about that, and you talk about cars in which you can't drive slowly, 
well, there's one of the life's great experiences is burbling down a lane slowly in a in a V8, just yeah. taking your time. And, and in fact, it's not a car because of its archaic transmission and lack of traction control, no ABS. Certainly when there's gravel or, or moisture on the ground, you, you don't want to use your right foot at all. Um, but it, it's great fun. And when you do want to light it up in, a, in dry weather, it's, it's brilliant. So that, that is a car of great so that, character. That, what year is that? 96, and it's uh, the old Buick slash Rover yeah. V8 yeah. pushrod engine. And it's, um, it's the later, later version of it, which is a five liter high compression engine. Yeah. So it puts out about 340 brake, yeah. So you've never, um, at least I'm guessing, you've never been tempted to go back, for example, to the original, something like the original Griffith, um, you know, in the well, 60s. With, you know, definitely. I mean, they're, uh, they're expensive. They're uh, quite sought after and very rare, aren't they? The, the old they, they are. They're not. Um, but, you know, I mean, uh, I'm, uh, I'm unconvinced that it would be beyond you. Um, <laughs> I'd have to sell a few things. Well, for indeed, sure. don't we all? But um, but my point yeah. being that um, you've you've mm. tended, if I if I look at your you know either current or previous cars, you've tended to stay relatively modern rather than yeah. go back yeah. into the sixties and fifties. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I probably stepped down a little bit. Um, next year and, and uh, looking forward to having more time to not only own these things, but look after them. Now, um, you've, um, you've dabbled, I think, with um, what might be called supercars. I mean, you had the Vantage, obviously. Um, yep. But yep. Um, um, what else have you been in that arena? Well, if you call it a supercar, I think one of the most capable cars out there is the Nissan GTR. Um, and not only in terms of its ability to go, but also to stop. I mean, that had the most astonishing brakes I've ever, on a car of that weight, it must be about, in, in European terms, 1,700 kilograms. Um, incredible stopping power but also amazing traction, amazing ability on a track, you know, just about anything. Most people wouldn't call that a supercar, more of a sports car. Um, it was originally, it was one of the earlier R35s. So it was about 478 brake and I had it um, chipped and had the, the um, exhaust changed. So it was about 580, but those, as you know, go out to at least a thousand brake with modifications. Um, and just an astonishing all-round supercar at a fraction of the price of, say, a Turbo S. And then the other one I had was the McLaren 570, which again was um, remapped to 640, and that really is quite wild. You could spin the spin the rear wheels yeah. up even with traction control on in fourth gear. Yeah. So the the. Um... The skyline uh, is uh, always struck me as being something like a mar of a marmite car, as in yeah. The, yeah. the aficionados, you know, would consider that the term supercar was an understatement. I mean, they're mm. and yet everyone else just dismisses them as being, you know, ugly and boring, etc. And they're 
they're clearly um, quite um, polarizing in their opinion, but amazing performance. But um, yeah, what was your what? How would you summarize your McLaren experience? I saw recently, um, you know, the and uh, we briefly touched upon it. Um, in general, never mind the you know the current months, etc. That you know the depreciation of supercars does vary, and um, you know McLaren is McLaren and Aston Martin are are amongst the worst depreciators. Um, yeah, forget the depreciation. Um, you know their biggest complaint people have about McLarens is that they're not that reliable, and and yeah. Their yeah. service is yeah. not good. What was? How would you summarize your McLaren experience? Well, I think I firstly, I think looks wise, they're fantastic. Yeah. Drivability and and just everyday driving comfort on on you know our dreadful roads in the UK was one of the best supercars out there. Um, power delivery, astonishing. Yeah, build quality compared to the AMG GTR and the Porsche 911 is not. It's just not as good. Um, and it would have some annoying little foibles, like if you left it for more than a week off charge, it would uh, flatten its battery and and um, scramble the ECU, and uh, and you'd be left in trouble having to fumble under the wheel arch to pull a cable to get the front trunk open, so you could get some uh, get some exposure to the terminals which were in the front to recharge it. So it just had that niggle, same way as Aston Martins actually. The advantage was a bit niggly like that. And every time you get into a, like the AMG TR, it feels like it's been carved out of a single lump of granite and, and never loses charge or, or, or shows its unreliability or build quality to be anything other than top, top draw. Um, so yeah, the McLaren is, is a really lovely car to look at. I think a good test for a car is when you close your garage, whether you turn around quickly and have a little glance inside. And some cars, Pass that test like Aston's and McLaren's. You might not do that with the with the Nissan Skyline. Yeah. But you'd certainly enjoy being in the car. And the other thing I quite like with with cars is is people in the know. They they wave and they give you a thumbs up. Yeah. And um, they you know they they look at a Skyline or R35 as we call them over here the GTR. And uh, and you get a lot of kudos from people that know, um, and and a bit a bit with the AMG GTR as well because a lot of people look at it and think well it's just a, a an SL with a hard top on it or whatever and uh, but ones that know realise that it's got certain characteristics the power the delivery the aero the noise and uh, and so I quite enjoy cars that are a little bit. You know, cause people to put their thumbs up, whereas some cars cause people to put two fingers up at you, if if you know what I mean. Certainly yes. in the UK, where they have that that rather malignant envy for people that buy these cars, which is which is obviously something that's keeping you away from a um, a, a Rosso red Ferrari. <laughs> yeah, I've certainly certainly. I think maybe I need to move to the south of. France, John, and then I'll then I'll buy that Ferrari, yeah, Lapco, Lapco fund, when it so, when it gets there. So uh, talk to me about Lapco. Um, um, you yeah. are you are the the Lapco guy internationally, as as you know. There's somewhere in the history of Lapco, 
there'll be one or two of my fingerprints, but um, absolutely, but very much so. Well, yeah. but you know, you 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 took it and ran with it for how many years? Um, seven years. So, so you, I think you left in '08, mm -hmm. and uh, I took over and ran it until 2014-15 um, in the UK. National Training Program for Laparoscopic Colorectal Surgery as four consultants or surgeons, um, for those that don't know. And as you know, we published extensively with George Hanna, the um, prof from uh, Imperial College St. Mm -hmm. Mary's, and, uh, and that led to the attraction and interest from abroad, um, including the United States, and ended up going to places like, um, well, SAGE's meetings all over the States, but working in Houston with Brian Duncan when he was um, at Houston Methodist Medical Center and the mighty center there. Um, yeah. And then in other specialties in places like Australia, we have a faculty, LabCo faculty in gynecology. We have faculties that teach our courses in Norway, Denmark. We run courses in Istanbul for surgeons from over 100 countries now. And it's all around how to maximize the efficiency and impact of surgical training. In, oftentimes around laparoscopic surgery, but we also now work with robotic companies yeah. um, using mm -hmm. our train the trainers principles. Yeah. Uh, and we have contracts with um, robotic companies to do that all over the world. Currently working in South America, Middle East, going out to India, and of course, Europe and the UK and so on. So LAPCO originally was the Department of Health Initiative. Yeah. Um, and yeah. the LAPCO that you're referring to now uh, is a separate entity that, that you spun off, if you like. And yeah. Um, so, uh, so a couple of questions. Um, um, what, what happened to the NH, sorry, the um, Department of Health bit, the original LAPCO? Um, yeah, the, 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 National Cancer Action Team, led by Professor Sir Mike Richards, that unit got dissolved. And at a time when we wished to continue training, particularly to address rectal cancer and so on laparoscopically, um, the Department of Health pulled the funding. By then, we were into the recession in the early, um, you know, 2010s, 11s, 12s. Yeah. So the funding disappeared. The Department of Health, they decided to cancel the program. Nothing to do with us. Um, but, uh, but from that arose the LAPCO International Consultancy, um, where we started to form relationships between surgeons and companies and us to open doors um, and to leverage um, our ideas for surgical training in other parts of the world. So it's been working quite well now. Yeah. I recall asking Mike Richards at the beginning um, what the aspiration was and you know he's quite the pragmatist mike richards um and uh, i i was expecting a a detailed scientific answer um and he was very um, explicit he said by the time of the london olympics 2012 um i want it to be that any patient in the UK with um, mm. colon cancer would either have or have access to mm. a laparoscopic colorectal operation. Um, 
if I was to ask you today, um, how would you look back on that as an aspiration and, and a deliverable? Yeah, I remember in 2008-09, one of the first thing we did was to survey every, I think, 164 mm -hmm. hospitals in England that did, did colon cancer to say, are you doing no, a little or a lot of laparoscopic yeah. colon resection? And we ascertained that around half were doing a significant volume, uh, half were not, and a very small number were doing um, none. So we had to really focus in on the hospitals where where little or none was being done. And that's that very much was our mantra. And I like that story about 2012. That's a that's a neat way of encapsulating it because once once and the and the big thing I think that opened the door was giving everybody a really approachable website where they could upload each training case yeah. and link to that to funding. So we gave I think 800 pounds, British pounds for each training episode by asking each episode to be accompanied by one of the online assessment forms. Yeah. No form, no money. You do your form, you get your money. And that really, within a year, I think um, by 2010 or so, we had around 1,000 or 1,200 cases registered, which is a huge volume of yeah. material accompanied by all the data that, that George Hatter and colleagues crunched into various papers. Yeah. So I think actually by 2012, we sort of realized that we were well down that, that journey. We didn't insist on people doing in-reach or outreach training or immersion. We just allowed flexibility. All we insisted upon was, you know, you're not dealing with trainees um, or residents. You're dealing with consultants or surgeons. You need to give them the tools and show them how to do the job. Um, and those those simple things, I think, really resulted in, in success. And if you look at the National Bowel Cancer Audit data from the 20, 2007 going through to about 2015, you went from less than 10% laparoscopic versus open up to 60 or 70% laparoscopic yeah. versus yeah. open. So so many of those measures, it was was a success. Thank, thanks to all the efforts of the um, surgeons providing the training and the surgeons willing to be trained because as we know surgeons are not always characterized by their willingness to be retrained so uh, sure. i think that was yeah. uh it no was, it's been it a, almost like a wave of momentum yeah yeah and i think it's you know i think enormous credit to you and your colleagues it's been it has been the template internationally which is why of course the the model that you have now has become so successful um, mm. um, uh, internationally because it's you know I don't I, I do I do not think there's a better model that has been executed better anywhere. So um, kudos to you and uh, and your colleagues. So um, in the few minutes that we have left, a um, couple of you know topical items and a couple of cheesy items. So the topical <laughs> item is, um, so um, uh, what about retirement? Yeah, so I'm actually, I was 59 last week. <clears throat> and um, fortunately, touch wood in, in good health and uh, looking forward to um, what we call and has become a reality recently for retire and return or flexible retirement in the NHS where you can take your pension at the age of 60 or whenever you want to and continue working 
and in fact contributing to whatever pension pot you want to. They've changed the law because of tax penalties that were forcing people like myself to retire and not and not return. So so that that's my plan. The the Lapco consultancy is becoming ever busier. We're looking to generate a digital platform, if you like, that, that mirrors very much um, the, the work that we did in the original program, because we realized that a lot of countries, systems, residency programs around the world don't have access to a really good joined up online system for formative assessment, for summative assessment, mm -hmm. to, to have a portfolio of their training activities, which needs to be either low cost or cost free as well, bearing in mind that we want to work in high middle and low income countries as well so we think there's a real market for that kind of things there's an ongoing demand for our train the trainers course which is one of the most rigorously assessed courses on the planet for surgeons to both elevate their skills of 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 being a surgeon and being more, more most importantly a trainer as well so so that that's being busy um, I run a local charity called Bowel Cancer West, which is, mm -hmm. like many charities, really struggled through the pandemic. Yeah. Um, we do a lot of car-related things to raise awareness, which is nice because it attracts in a, a key demographic, demographic of middle-aged men and talks about symptoms and health and yeah. fitness and diet, which is really important. Um, and my, many people don't know that the southwest of England actually is an area where there's a lot of social deprivation, which not many people realize. So, um, yeah, there's a lot to do. I've got the family, um, child of 16 who's doing well at school and uh, property to look after. So many exciting prospects. So um, what would you, if a young uh, aspiring doctor uh, says to you today, um, I'm thinking of doing surgery in the NHS. Um, what, what's your um, soundbite for that person? I think one, once you've got to that point of realization, I mean, if you're talking about somebody who's been through medical school, then uh, I think it's one of the best careers to to still get into. And, and I think there is much greater opportunity for particularly for women to go into surgery these days and we we have it seems to me more than half of our current residents or registrars are are female and i and i think it's to be encouraged and yeah. um, only only in the next two or three years we're going to go from having i think maybe two or three out of 20 general surgeons in my hospital being female to getting on towards five six seven eight and and uh, i think that'll be fantastic they bring their own skill sets their own conscientiousness and ability and they'll complement what we do and, and only add to our things so so i i encourage people to go into surgery <clears throat> definitely and you so you're optimistic for the future despite all the we have, we have to be i hope hope yeah. to be around to bring in my successors as consultants yeah. so they can look after me when i become <laughs> old and crumbly Okay, so uh, we'll finish off with just a, with a few more lighthearted questions. So, the car you regret selling most? Oh, um, there's a good one. I think there's something something slightly different. Actually, I, I used to have an Audi RS6 Avant, mm -hmm. 
and there is absolutely nothing better for going to the south of France or the Alps yeah. down the Payage, and uh, you'd get, say, a 911 coming up behind you, not quite realizing what they were behind, <laughs> and doing that continental thing of flashing and you putting their outside indicator on until the traffic cleared, and then then they'd realize they'd come up against something of of a greater ability than them. That was that was fun. But then you realize you were doing 150, and you need to slow exactly. down. Exactly. <laughs> Um, the biggest disappointment in a car? Um, yeah, that would probably be, oh, that's a difficult one. Uh, my The Mark II Golf GTI was just a bit too vanilla compared to the Mark yeah. I, and I had that um, and sold it just before we went to Australia back in the 90s, and uh, it was unreliable and just didn't have the character of the original GTI. And the one that surprised you in terms of being better than you thought it was going to be? I think the R35, this, this Skyline. Yeah. yeah. That's such yeah. a capable car. And, but uh, there are many, hopefully many more cars to come. Well, and so that's, that leads me to the last question, which was with an open checkbook, um, what would it be? An open and blank checkbook. I think I would have a, a McLaren F1. Because of the style, because of the engine, because of the, because of what? I, I, one of those cars you sort of grew up with. Uh, one of the most iconic supercars of its time and still is. Yeah. Um, I loved it. I loved its looks. The fact that it didn't have any obvious aero on it. Had an NAV12. Um, and you know things that interested a young man like gold leaf in the engine bay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And titanium and, and other fancy alloys. And some some quite posh-looking, ridiculously shaped luggage. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It always amuses me. I had a friend in uh, upstate New York who ordered a, a Ferrari Pista. Uh, yeah very optioned, you know, um, mm. etc. And I said to him, um, I remember saying to him, did you order the luggage? And, he, and his answer to that, absolutely true. He said, no, I did not. He said, that luggage is very expensive, you know. <laughs> I, mean, he, I think he just spent close on 700,000 with the thing. <laughs> yeah. But he didn't want to be yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, on that note, uh, Mark, uh, uh, I um, I'm really grateful you spent so much time with us today. We'll be going live with these very soon. I'll let you know. Um, Thank you. Um, please um, don't hesitate to send me any links you would like put on the YouTube element. For example, uh, the um, the charity and lap yeah, and various we'll things, yeah, and we'll um, you never know, it might make you famous. Thank you very much indeed, and it's lovely to see you looking so well, John. And thanks for thanks, the opportunity. Mark. Thanks the so best. much. Bye now.